This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Pleasure to welcome you today to the third of three Hitchcock lectures to be given by Professor Michael Coe. The Hitchcock Endowment Fund was established in 1865 to recognize the highest levels of scholarly thought and achievement. This fund has grown over the years and has brought many notable individuals to the Berkeley campus, including Niels Bohr, Robin Oppenheimer, and Stephen Hawking. The bequest has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California. We are pleased to present to you today, under the aegis of the Hitchcock Professorship Fund, the highly distinguished Professor Michael Coe. Professor Coe is the Charles J. McCurdy Professor of Anthropology Emeritus at Yale University. As one of the foremost authorities in historical archaeology, his studies of ancient Mayan culture and writing systems have been heralded as major developments in the understanding and evolution of this fascinating civilization. Thanks to Professor Coe's work, we now know much more about the Maya, a people that achieved remarkable advancements in art, literature, mathematics, and astronomy. Professor Coe has written numerous books on the Maya, including Breaking the Maya Code and The Art of the Maya Scribe. He has also written about a broad array of Mesoamerican subjects ranging from pre-Columbian art, pottery, and ceramics to the history of chocolate in the Western Hemisphere, which I trust some of you heard about yesterday. Professor Coe's work is sensitive to developments in all areas of Maya research and to the growing knowledge about interactions between the Maya and other ancient peoples of the region. His studies have also extended to other Mesoamerican civilizations, including both the Aztecs of Central Mexico and the Olmec in Southern Mexico and Central America. As a result of these efforts, his work has significantly contributed to the awareness of Mesoamerican history and has influenced our understanding of the evolution of ancient civilizations in general. In this lecture today, entitled Parallel Civilizations, Ancient Angkor and the Ancient Maya, Professor Coe discusses the evolution of yet another mysterious civilization from the other side of the world, the Angkor of ancient Cambodia. The Angkor, still an enigma and a matter of dispute among academics, was a remarkable civilization that housed a vast urban complex. Professor Coe believes that there are potential analogies to be drawn between the ancient Angkor and Mayan settlement patterns. And so holding, he hopes to illuminate the mysteries that enshroud this ancient and fascinating civilization. Without further delay, I am pleased to present to you Professor Michael Coe. I'd really like to express warm thanks to uh, Dean Mason and the members of the Hitchcock Committee for inviting me here. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Nothing like an audience to a retired old professor. I haven't had an audience for a long time, and uh, you've been a good one. Uh, 
I got interested in this subject of uh, ancient Cambodia a very long time ago, almost as long ago as I've been involved with the peoples of Mesoamerica. In 1954, uh, on my way back from uh, a two-year assignment in the Far East, uh, I decided I wanted to go to Angkor, and one could then. And this was uh, no less than 46 uh, years ago, and I was flabbergasted. I had been in the Maya area quite a lot ever since I was a sophomore at, uh, at Harvard and changed my major from uh, English to anthropology so I could study the Maya. And I'd seen the great Maya sites, uh, not all of them, uh, by a long shot, but I had seen them in their tropical forest setting. And when I walked through Angkor, I was just flabbergasted uh, at how similar uh, Angkor was to a classic Maya site. Uh, the jungle looked the same, the animals sounded the same, the, uh, a lot of the sculpture looked similar, and certainly the architecture really resounded. Now, this afternoon, I'm not going to draw uh, any conclusions or even suggest that there were any connections uh, between these two. Frankly, uh, not for publication. I think there were, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> that's uh, in my uh, dotage. That's what I'm going to devote myself to. But uh, nobody else would believe me on this. But uh, there are some amazing parallels between these two cultures. Now, the great strength of being an anthropologist, rather than any other kind of an ologist, is that anthropology, from its very uh, founding, from its founders back in the mid-19th century, has been a comparative study. Um, it began as a, really the comparative study of civ civilizations and in particular of ancient religions. And uh, some of the great theorists uh, back in those days, um, men like Lewis Henry Morgan and uh, uh, Edward Tyler and people of this sort who, who were the founding fathers of anthropology were comparative uh, scholars. They believed that by comparing civilizations in the past through time and space, you could, uh, you could illuminate the whole story of how human cultures came about to be. Now, this afternoon, I'm not going to draw any great conclusions by a long shot. There's some big questions that can be raised, um, perhaps without any good answers, and some little ones. Uh, I'm not a person who believes that all cultures can be reduced to one particular grand unified field theory. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, that works, and I don't think it has worked in the past, and it's led us down many false uh, paths that uh, ended up in a blank and turned out to be wrong. Um, I'm a believer in multiple causations, but you'll see some interesting parallels uh, when we get to them between these two cultures. Now, I've been back uh, since the uh, peace has returned to that really troubled land of Cambodia. I've been back uh, five times, and I'll be there again uh, next month. And uh, each time I go, I learn something new. It's a place one can go to now, and uh, 
I'm glad. I, I, I came very close to, to wanting, when I got back to Harvard, to dropping all this stuff about the Maya. I came back into graduate school as a graduate student uh, to study. And I thought, well, the heck with the Maya. I think I'll do the ancient Khmer of Cambodia. This is really going to be the future. I'm so glad I did not because of the, the really the tragic history of that place. Uh, War-torn, massacres, genocide, every horrible thing that can ever happen to a people in a land has happened to these people. And uh, I would have had uh, no success whatsoever. So I stuck with the Maya and the other Mesoamericans. But now in my old age, I'm coming back to an original love of mine and uh, I'm not sorry about it so I think we'll start with the first slide now uh, for those of you who didn't hear me about the the Maya uh, I just wanted to recapitulate some of the what we know about the Maya civilization without spending any great time on it so we can move across the ocean to Cambodia and to Angkor and the Khmer classic Khmer civilization uh, essentially, the Maya uh, occupied the lowland Maya that I'm talking about during the classic period from around 250 A.D. till uh, about 900 A.D. Uh, occupied this region of the uh, southeastern Mesoamerican lowlands, the Yucatan Peninsula, and particularly the southern lowlands here, which is where most of the uh, great ancient cities like Tikal and Copan and Quirigua, uh, Piedras Negras and so forth are located. Sometime uh, beginning about 800 AD, something went drastically wrong with these people uh, and with this civilization. And center after center, city after city, failed to put up dated stone monuments. Uh, evidence of widespread destruction um, and mass migration out from there um, to other parts of Mesoamerica, particularly to northern Yucatan and apparently to the Guatemalan and Chiapas Highlands down in, in here. This area was abandoned, uh, really pretty much for, for hundreds and hundreds, almost uh, 800 years, uh, reverted to, to the jungle. Something terrible happened there. And I'll come back to that at the end of this uh, uh, lecture when we talk about what happened to Angkor. So uh, this is the environment in which this all took place. Uh, this is the uh, in northern Guatemala, uh, actually taken from uh, top of one of the higher pyramids at uh, Tikal, and it's a tropical monsoon forest uh, here. Um, that's the original vegetation of the Maya lowlands. However, uh, we do know from uh, pollen studies that have been made by the palynologists uh, that, in fact, this uh, forest is a, is a regrowth that the Maya had most of it cut down, as a matter of fact, towards the end of the classic uh, period due to their agricultural practices. But essentially, before humans came into this, this is what this area lo uh, looked like. It's a tropical forest civilization that arose there. Now, in that kind of environment, to make a living, of course, these people are, are maize, corn agriculturalists, maize, beans, squash, 
uh, uh, chili peppers and a host of other domesticates, but essentially maize farmers, um, a form of cultivation called swidden or shifting cultivation uh, is the rule and has been uh, in uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years and probably was largely so in the past during the classic period, shifting uh, cultivation. Uh, where the farmer burns down a section of, uh, of forest uh, at the end of the dry season. Uh, he, he cuts it down, excuse me, allows it to dry out at the end of the dry season, and then fires it. And in the ashes, plant, plants the, the, the maize so that all the nutrients that were in the trees are now in the soil. It's not a, at all a bad form of cultivation, except it's highly destructive to the forest. And this is one of the reasons why we believe most of it was cut down. Now, that's not the only form of cultivation that the classic Maya uh, practiced. Uh, within the last 20 uh, years or, or so, we have come to know from aerial surveys and on the ground uh, checking of this, and even through a certain amount of radar uh, survey using uh, side-looking airborne radar, that there is a, another form of cultivation which was highly intensive in the swampy, low-lying areas, which are very extensive in the Maya region. Uh, they uh, cut what are basically ditches and canals, um, sort of the way the, the uh, land of Holland was uh, rescued or the fens of eastern England uh, through drainage, uh, leaving rectangular plots uh, which are continuously wet and uh, uh, using the mud from the uh, ditches to, to, to basically uh, fertilize uh, these, these plots. And this is a highly intensive form of agriculture that uh, was practiced in uh, not ex really over the whole Maya area, but in certain important places. So they could probably support a lot more people than we gave them credit for, let's say, 50 years ago, when we thought slash and burn cultivation was the only uh, kind. There were very, very high populations, we know. I won't go into this here but now, but there's excellent evidence from uh, archaeological survey that uh, the populations uh, uh, in the Maya area were tremendous. There were millions of people living in that area that by, uh, let's say, 1,000 AD probably had only a few thousand. That's, of course, the, uh, one of the more famous uh, classic Maya sites uh, seen from the air, these great conglomerations of temple pyramids and uh, palace structures uh, uh, here. Uh, which are uh, range-type buildings with corbel vaulting in which the uh, kings and queens and royal court uh, courts of the Maya uh, lived and carried out their life. These are royal cities in every respect. Um, at the bidding of the uh, ruler, there was basically all life went on. Uh, he was a holy person. He was a divine king. And we will come to these divine kings when we come to uh, Cambodia and Southeast Asia again. Uh, many of these uh, great Maya cities have been extremely well mapped. 
uh, on the ground surveys with testing of structures and uh, really uh, we know an awful lot about the settlement pattern of places like Tikal and elsewhere. In large part that grew out of the uh, work of my old professor Gordon uh, uh, Willie uh, uh, at Harvard, now retired, um, who was the uh, founder of studies of this sort basically in archaeology and is a, was a world leader in this and he turned his attention to the Maya area and uh, he stimulated all of this kind of ground survey so that we can actually plot out, this is Tikal, most of Tikal that you see, these are the central Acropolis, which was the palace of Tikal, and these are the, the great uh, temple pyramids here, which were dedicated to the royal cult, to the cult of dead kings, of, of ancestral kings. Uh, but huge causeways, reservoirs, because uh, uh, drinking water is a great problem uh, in the Maya area even today. But essentially that's it. A sort of an amorphous settlement pattern. It doesn't look like a city, a Near Eastern city. It doesn't look like a Chinese city laid out on a grid pattern at all. But a very, very amorphous kind of a, a settlement pattern. But a city nevertheless because it had the function of a city. Uh, most Maya architecture, uh, uh, most Maya buildings are really uh, like uh, wedding cakes. That is, there's layer after layer after layer after layer of buildings built up uh, through the centuries uh, by kings who had rebuilding programs and so forth where they tore down the, the uh, vaults bolted structures, superstructures on older buildings and then raised other buildings above them. So here, for instance, at the site of Washaktun, which I talked about last time, is the original, uh, an original temple complex with three temples around it, perhaps dedicated to three gods, and then successive rebuildings uh, until finally this thing has turned into a palace with interior uh, uh, temples at the end of the late classic. This is the kind of archaeology that's been done in the Maya area, and it's been of the absolutely highest quality. And it's the kind of archaeology that's barely begun in Southeast Asia. Uh, Maya architecture was extraordinarily uh, uh, beautiful. Uh, this is the site of Palenque, where some of the most beautiful architecture is. You're looking at a late classic building, 8th century AD, called the Temple of the Sun at uh, uh, Palenque. And it was built, we know who the person who, who built this was. It, it's part of a complex of uh, actually four different major structures uh, in that area built by a king named Khan Balam, the son of the man who was buried in the great temple of the inscriptions there. Uh, very, very uh, uh, beautiful, all covered with stucco at one point. And um, it was sort of like a billboard up here. This is the a uh, roof comb which had stucco figures of it, of the gods and of the ancestors. Uh, this is uh, from, uh, you, somebody asked me um, previously about uh, this book by John Lloyd Stevens. Uh, John Lloyd Stevens went in the 1830s to this region with Frederick Catherwood, an English topographical artist. And later on, Catherwood in 1850 published a wonderful lithograph album of his lithographs. Uh, of uh, uh, various Maya sites, including Copan. Uh, Stevens bought Copan for 50 bucks, so they could do whatever they wanted there. And uh, they got a wonderful account of it. The Maya had a uh, uh, put up steely, dated uh, monuments uh, of their kings. Um, put it the other way around. The kings put up monuments for themselves. 
uh, this particular king was a guy named Washak Lahun Ubakawil. And this particular character had put up a number of very important stele or monuments at Copan to celebrate his reign and his association with the gods, particularly with the maize god. And in front of it are uh, altars. This is a death's head altar. We don't know a lot about that, but the stele are usually associated with these uh, uh, altars. And of course, all of this has hieroglyphic uh, writing on it. Now, these Maya kings were divine kings. They had the title of Kul Ahau, or Kul Ahau, the holy king of such and such a city. And uh, the, many of these cities had very, very long uh, uh, dynastic successions, very long lineages. Tikal had uh, dozens of, well, almost two dozen rulers, uh, one after another in an unbroken succession, uh, really, which lasted uh, almost uh, 700 years. The um, other uh, cities were, uh, had more recent founding and therefore had to invent past genealogies. But these kings sat on thrones in their palaces. They had uh, uh, probably numbers of wives and a principal wife, and they had heirs apparent, and all sorts of rites were celebrated by them to mark victories and to mark important time periods. The writing, as you know from my first lecture, can be read. Uh, even if we can't pronounce all of it, we can do most of it uh, in uh, uh, what we call uh, Choltian Maya, the ancestor of Chorti Maya, which was the literary language of these people. And we can read uh, uh, this. This is a huge, uh, this is a great slab from Palenque, very, very late in the history of Palenque, by a master calligrapher. And uh, it's the dynastic history of the kings of Palenque. Uh, particularly mentioning a very important king named Pakal, who was the guy that, uh, uh, buried in the temple of the inscriptions in the great sarcophagus and tomb uh, in there, and ending up with the ruler down here who commissioned this, this whole uh, thing, uh, a, a, a man named Kuk Balam, or uh, Ketal Jaguar, who was also, like all of his predecessors, a Kulahau, a holy king. The Maya were uh, uh, tremendously warlike, except the people of Copan, who were relatively peaceful. There are hardly any war monuments there at all. But this is uh, uh, a wonderful mural, a watercolor copy of it, uh, at, uh, uh, in a small building with three rooms at the site of Bonampak uh, in the southern Maya lowlands. And uh, here you have a, uh, the king, a guy named Chan Muan. Uh, as war leader in his jaguar costume with all of his uh, underlings and officers and his principal wife over here and they uh, is this is called the arraignment of the prisoners the Maya uh, most of these Maya uh, political kingdoms were at, at war at one time or another with other ones and warfare was a tremendously important thing. Highly, highly warlike people, as you will see that the Khmer of Cambodia were and are. The political geography of the Maya area during the classic is pretty darn well known now. Uh, Instead of an old empire, as earlier uh, people had thought existed there, say with Tikal as its great capital, there never was an empire. There never was a unitary uh, political system at any time in the Maya lowlands. 
Um, the, uh, this is the political geography of the southern Maya lowlands as we know it from their inscriptions, in particular from the emblem glyphs that I talked about the first time. And uh, you will see that the actual territory, these of course are idealistic polygons uh, that uh, the anthropologists have drawn, but uh, the, the, the territory is never, that they control is never very big, that they actually controlled. That were, um, say, this is the territory of the Tikal polity. In fact, the boundary between it and the next uh, uh, kingdom was never more than a day or two's uh, walk or march from the capital city. So these are not very big. It's sort of a Balkan-type situation. And this came as a great surprise to Mayanus, how to account for this. And it marks them off from the civilization that we're going to be looking at um, uh, shortly. So that's what it all looked like uh, at the time uh, of the, um, uh, just before the, the whole thing collapsed in the ninth century AD. However, having said that, it's also true that uh, they might have looked all equal there, but some of them were more equal than others. And uh, in particular, these two uh, cities, Kalak Mul here, that's its uh, main sign of its emblem glyph, the snake city, uh, 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 and Tikal, this is named, anciently named Khan, or snake, and this is anciently, actually not Tikal, but Mutul we now know is the real name of Tikal. Uh, that these two cities hated each other. And they had a, a rivalry that went on for centuries in which each one of them would try through diplomatic means and uh, intermarriages and diplomatic visits and whatnot to somehow or another co-opt uh, other cities and get them allied against their enemy. And this is a, a whole scheme that's come out recently of the political alliances and misalliances that took place during the classic uh, uh, period. We never could have done this uh, 30 years ago, I mean 25 years ago. Uh, now we can start talking about this kind of thing now that we can read these inscriptions. The whole idea of uh, warfare was not necessarily to get territory here, but rather, they never had that idea, but rather to get political hegemony over other people, to command tribute from states that were left alone, uh, basically politically, but always had the threat of an army coming in. And secondly, and probably even more importantly, to take great captives, important captives from that other city and bring them in for torture and sacrifice. This is on a, a bone uh, from, a small, beautifully incised bone from the tomb of uh, Hasao Chan Kawil, the, uh, the king of, uh, the great king of Tikal, who won a great battle over Kalak Mul. And this is a prisoner from Kalak Mul on this, and he is actually given his name and titles here, and it says that he comes from Kalak Mul here, which is way to the north, a bitter enemy. So Tikal eventually won, but that's the main point of Maya warfare. Okay, that's the Maya. I'll come back to them uh, later. Now let's move to the other side of the world, and I mean it is the other side, at least it is from New Haven. Um, this is, uh, of course, a map of Southeast Asia. 
And uh, I'm not going to go into any great detail about the geography here, but this is Southeast Asia here with the great Mekong River coming down through here, one of the largest river systems in the world. Uh, uh, and it comes down through these lowlands here, and that is the center of the Khmer Empire right there. The Khmer held that, uh, including the Delta region, which is now in South Vietnam, and then all of this land north of the Dangrek Mountains up here in the Korat Plateau in northeastern uh, Thailand, plus a whole lot more. That's the area that we're going to be uh, looking at. The prehistory of this place, uh, at least of Cambodia, is not well known, although the archaeology of Thailand, uh, northeastern Thailand in particular, has been much better worked out than uh, uh, in this area here than in Cambodia proper. But about the beginning of the Christian era and in the first centuries of it, there were very important trade contacts between uh, India uh, uh, and Southeast Asia and contacts that also included uh, Chinese goods coming in here, uh, goods from India, and even uh, goods coming from the Mediterranean. Crossing the Malay Peninsula into uh, entrepots, trading, uh, uh, trading posts uh, in uh, the coast of Southeast Asia or near the coast. The net result of this was that in this region of Southeast Asia, uh, southern Vietnam, the Delta region, Cambodia today, uh, Thailand, the Malay Peninsula, there were a series of chieftains, uh, of local chiefs, uh, who were uh, probably clan leaders or leaders of uh, perhaps patrilineal clans, people who spoke an ancestral form of Khmer or uh, an ancestral form of uh, 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 Cham, which is a Malayo-Polynesian language, and who had uh, been d taken as their model uh, for how to put a polity together, India. This area became Indianized at this point. And um, there was a long time when, uh, because of all of the uh, obvious presence of Indian ideas here, that uh, Indian patriots claimed that this was actually greater India. Uh, but it was no such thing. Uh, these people were emulating a great the great civilization of India and taking the whole idea uh, of the God King and of the exemplary center uh, uh, of the hero uh, uh, king, like uh, uh, Rama in the Ramayana, as the model to put together something more complex uh, uh, than uh, uh, a mere chiefdom. And you have, uh, during these centuries, leading up to about 800 AD, you have the crystallization of some of these chiefdoms into real states built on Indian lines. This is not to say that Indians came en masse by a long shot. Uh, Perhaps gurus came at this point, uh, uh, wandering monks and priests and holy men. But many of these people who were gurus were probably Khmer who had gone to India to learn these things and come back. 
So it's no simple takeover. And why India rather than China? Because the Chinese model of uh, uh, contact is takeover. Uh, the Chinese imposed upon northern Vietnam, for instance, uh, their way, their bureaucracy, their people, and their tribute uh, uh, system, uh, so that you were beholden to the Chinese emperor, wherever he happened to be. Uh, this did not take place in the rest of Southeast Asia, and they kept the Chinese at arm's length except to, to trade. So you had these, these crystallizing kingdoms. Um, the Chinese, there are Chinese um, reports about these kingdoms. Um, they talk about a, first a, a, a kingdom called Funan down here in the Delta region and along this part of Cambodia. And then later they talk about a, 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 a really important region called Genla up here in what's uh, northeastern Cambodia and neighboring, neighboring uh, uh, Vietnam. And these are crystallizing kingdoms. There's, there's actually architecture to go with this. These are becoming urban centers with heavy trading going on and all, all sorts of rare materials between India, China, uh, and Southeast Asia. Incidentally, from down here in a site called Okeo, that the, uh, in the Delta region that the French dug before the war, before the Vietnam War, uh, they actually found uh, uh, Roman coinage uh, 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 coming all the way from uh, Italy uh, there. So th these were really trading entrepôts. Now I'd like to say something about the geography here because I've described to you the geography of the tropical lowlands of Southeast Asia, of, excuse me, of Southeastern Mesoamerica. Southeast Asia is very similar. Uh, except you've got to talk, talk here about the, the great river system. Uh, it's a monsoon climate, uh, uh, heavy tropical forest originally over much of it. Um, but the Mekong River is what really makes this whole uh, area. During the, uh, there are two strongly marked seasons, a rainy season, the so-called monsoon season, and a dry season, and they're exactly the same as the rainy and dry seasons in the Maya area, come at the same time. Uh, uh, rainy in our summer, uh, and in, especially in the fall, and dry from winter time on until uh, uh, the end of May, when the rains come again. During the, 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 the rainy season, in the summertime, the Mekong is nourished by the melting snows of Tibet, where it begins. And what happens is that this river coming down here, this great river, comes through all the mouths of the delta, and like a, uh, a, a bad sewer system, it backs up. Uh, it cannot handle all of that uh, water, and it backs up, the rivers back up and back up uh, uh, into this lake, the Great Lake or the Tonle Sap in Cambodia, which is the largest lake in Southeast Asia. And this lake expands to four times its dry season size. At that point, fish come in to breed in this region. And the Tonle Sap has the greatest density of fish in the world. It's uh, an incredible source of protein to the people of Cambodia. So if you look at that environment, this is Angkor, 
uh, it looks like the Maya area. It's a monsoon forest, a, a high tropical forest. However, um, this was and is today largely cut down. Some of it's left because it's an important source of various raw materials and things that people need. Uh, but uh, mostly it's gone because these people are rice agriculturalists. It's been left here in the, the great national park uh, that the government has at uh, Encore. You can actually see a ruin there peeking through the trees. It does look like the Maya. It looks like Tikal. This is a, a map of the uh, Tonle Sap itself, and you can see how uh, Angkor is placed here. This is where you fly into Angkor here. You stay at Siem Reap, and this is where Angkor is itself. It says Angkor Wat here. Let's say Angkor. Angkor means, uh, means city. It's the, it's the uh, Cambodian version of Negara, the Sanskrit word Negara for city. And it includes Angkor Wat, as you will see later on. But it's strategically located here because during the dry season, when the waters recede in the Tonle Sap, it's flooded, a very large area here. Uh, they plant in the receding, in the mud that's left by the receding waters. They plant their rice, and it's a, it's a bread basket. It's, it's like the Nile. Uh, uh, it's an incredibly rich area because most of the land in Cambodia is not that good away from the Tonle Sap or away from the river systems. But here it's incredibly good. And uh, because of the protein here in the Tonle Sap, the Great Lake, and because of the, the uh, receding agriculture, rice agriculture, receding water as rice agriculture, rather, uh, this is, Angkor is where it, it had to be. And the whole growth of Angkor, I think, depends, if you want to take economic models, upon the possibilities, the agricultural potential of this region. Now, as I said, there is a rainy season and a dry season. Uh, this is November, uh, which is sort of towards the tail end of the uh, rainy season. It's raining like mad now in Cambodia, and uh, it will taper off finally at the end of November and beginning uh, of December. And that's a fact. Uh, almost all uh, cultivation uh, uh, away from the uh, Great Lake depends upon this, this rainfall. Most of rice in Cambodia is actually rainfall uh, produced uh, uh, on fields that are merely watered by rain and uh, not cultivated at all in, the, in, in uh, the height of the dry season. Here you are looking out at the edge of the Tonle Sap. These are all flooded rice fields here. And as the water goes down, they will plant then in the mud, come in and plant in the mud. And this will all turn into green rice. It's quite a sight but it's just loaded with fish. Um, and there's a huge fishing industry here. Fish turned into, mainly uh, uh, turned into the most unattractive stuff to the Western uh, ears, uh, eyes and nose, uh, fish paste, fermented fish paste, which is a, a wonderful source of protein for everybody and is part of the Cambodian diet. You, you get to like it after a while. This is uh, 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 now a, a, a rice field in an area that has been left by the receding waters of the Tonle uh, Sap. Uh, I shot this one in uh, November, and you can see a Cambodian, little Cambodian uh, hamlet uh, there. All the houses in Cambodia are on stilts. Uh, 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 raised up uh, above the deck there, and people live in the uh, upper story, and the pigs and other th and animals, water buffaloes, uh, live down below. 
which would make it very, very difficult to find these things archaeologically. And uh, as I say, there are many kinds of rice grown uh, in Cambodia, all with different, by the Khmer, all with different growing uh, seasons, lengths of growing time, and different characteristics. Now today, of course, hybrid rice produced by the uh, Big Rice Institute up in the Philippines, that's spreading uh, everywhere. Um, not in some cases such a great idea. Now this place is big. Angkor is huge. Uh, Angkor uh, covers at least 75 square miles, 200 square kilometers. It's, I think, one of the, the perhaps the biggest ancient archaeological site in the entire world, and I'll prove it to you in a moment. Uh, it's so big it can be seen from space. Uh, it is, it's one of the things that you can see from space, like the Great Wall of China. And um, this is uh, a, a, an image from, uh, uh, taken from the, space, from the uh, shuttle, and Endeavour shuttle, a pass that, uh, uh, when they passed over uh, Angkor, uh, and a project that was backed by NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab to shoot, to make radar pictures at different, uh, uh, on different bands of Angkor itself. Here's the Tonle Sap down here. This is Angkor itself. These are the Kulen Hills. From which various, uh, from which all the water comes that runs down through Angkor to supply these huge uh, artificial basins here, really tremendous ones. There's Angkor Wat. This is Angkor Thom with the royal palace there and the Bayon in the center and all sorts of other complexes around it. But this thing is really enormous. Flying into uh, Siem Reap, into, uh, uh, from the west, from Bangkok, if you look out the plain, you'll see this. That's the western barai, the western reservoir here, completely artificial. Uh, stone lined on the edges. It's eight kilometers long, which is five miles long. The center of it is actually right here. This has all been silted up over here. And that's, there's another one on the other side of Angkor that's almost as big, and others uh, uh, elsewhere. So what were these? These are all rice fields here with hamlets. This is an ancient site right here. Um, what were these? And the idea came up early on. Uh, the French had been here for over a hundred years, uh, excavating and restoring it. And the idea came up from their uh, uh, investigations that these reservoirs were there because it was an irrigation civilization, that the kings of Angkor had these things constructed by hundreds of thousands of slaves to, to keep the water in so that these rice fields could all be uh, irrigated, that this was a prime example uh, uh, used by uh, various, uh, mainly Marxist uh, uh, historians and anthropologists to show that in, in Eastern Asia there was another kind of civilization uh, that uh, was a very rigidly organized kind of civilization that depended upon irrigation. It turns out not to be the case. There's a map of what you were looking at uh, uh, on the, in the radar picture, Angkor Bat is here. That's Angkor Thom with the royal palace and whatnot, the center uh, of, the, uh, of uh, the huge city here. The two barai, big barais, other ones are elsewhere. There's another one down here that should be in blue also. And I have put on that map of central Tikal at the same scale. You can barely see it. 
uh, it's postage stamp size. Uh, let's, you could put uh, how many tikals, uh, which Mayanists love to think is the biggest thing ever made in the history of the world, how many could you put within Angkor? Just to give you an idea of the size of this place. Now, there's a difference that uh, Angkor was the center of a great empire, a unitary empire, where tikal never was. So one has to be fair about this. But it does put things in perspective. Um, to the north, in the Kulen Hills, is where the uh, people of Angkor got the stone from which they constructed, or at least finished, their, uh, all of their buildings and architecture and from which they made their sculpture. And it's also the source of all the water that comes down to fill those barais and that runs through the site and through all the canals that are around there. This is the uh, headwaters of the Siem Reap River during the rainy season going over a waterfall here. Uh, these Kulen Hills are extremely important because, just to the north of Angkor, because at, in the year 802 AD, one particular king named uh, Yashovarman declared himself, he was a local ruler, he declared himself a universal king. And he founded the city of Angkor, which was called Yashodarapura. That's the ancient name for Angkor. Uh, so he is the founder of it, and he is the founder of the Khmer Empire. And it becomes, then you enter really something equivalent to the classic Maya period at this point. But in 802, I said that the models that on which they drew were India, 100% from India. And the Indian model for building uh, uh, architecture, for building a, a, a royal center and a royal temple, and these were royal temples. Uh, uh, everything you see at, at Angkor, all the great structures are royal temples. Uh, the, the, what they are doing is uh, reproducing the Himalaya mountains, the home of the gods, when they make these. These are temple mountains. And ideally, there's a central mountain with five other ones around it. This is a mandala. This is the, uh, uh, these are, are definitely uh, mandalas of Indian origin. And you are reproducing here Mount Meru, the great mountain of the gods, where all the gods and spirits live uh, in the Himalayas, according to Hindu mythology. Um, and around it, you construct a, a moat. And the moat represents the sea that surrounds Mount Meru. Even though it's a square moat and all the rest of it, that's what it is. Conceptually, it's that. So, in making this into each one of these temples, each king, successive king, made his royal temple here, or in temples to his ancestors, he is aligning himself with the gods in Mount Meru. And the gods are the Hindu gods. Shiva, the most important of all, the, the, the god of destruction, but also a great creator god, and the god of the royal family, and the royal house, and of the king himself, uh, as seen in the form of a, of a lingam. Uh, which is a stone phallus, uh, which represents the Godhead and the king at the same time. Vishnu, another very important god, the preserver, uh, and Brahma, the creator. These are the three gods of the Hindu trinity. There in one of the temples is a lingam sitting in the female uh, yoni here. 
it's been busted off, but it actually goes way underground, and it represents the three, Shiva on the top, and then the other two gods further down in parts that you cannot see. And these are the gods themselves. Uh, this is uh, this is the, the divine part. This is the holiest part of each temple. Uh, is is the lingam here, which each successive king dedicated. These are royal foundations. Now, where is that? <laughs> you think it looks like Tikal? Uh, it's Angkor. I practically fell over when I saw this uh, for the first time in 1954. Uh, the earliest architecture in uh, Angkor, uh, this is a temple mountain actually, looks uh, <laughs> terrifically Maya. And I really don't think there's any connection because the dates are wrong. Uh, remember, this can't be any earlier and isn't any earlier. It actually dates to the 10th, early in the 10th century AD. Uh, the Maya area is over by that time. The Maya were making this kind of thing long before the Cambodians were. So uh, if there was any influence, it went the other way. Mayas paddled their canoes across the Pacific and brought it to the other side. But it's remarkably similar. Each one of these temples has inscriptions in it. Um, the the uh, inscriptions uh, are generally on the sides, uh, on the jams of the uh, buildings, of the doorways, when you get to the temple on the top where the lingam is kept. And what do they say? Some of them are in Sanskrit, and some of them are in Khmer. The Sanskrit ones are of interest to the history of religion because they're entirely religious. They are describe the dedication of the temple to a particular god and describe the holy ancestry of that particular king and so forth. And they're poetry. They're actual Sanskrit poems, very beautiful ones, um, in writing that's eventually derived from India, but it's typically Khmer, Khmer writing, but uh, writing in Sanskrit. Uh, the Khmer ones are much more interesting to archaeologists because they give you some economic data. They tell you that each one of these temples had so many villages attached to it that had to produce, through corvée labor and tribute and temple work, had to produce so much each year at certain times. And some of, this, some of these temples had, uh, and temple complexes had thousands of villages attached to it uh, with up, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are called knum, which some people translate as slaves, but nobody's quite sure what. Probably the majority of the people in the landscape of the villagers in Cambodia were attached to one or another of these temples in, in Angkor and all the other provincial sites. Uh, we know from the inscriptions, which don't tell us a really a great deal, that there were uh, uh, as much as 90 provincial capitals in the Angkor Empire, and each one of them filled with temples that had its own villages. I suspect the Maya uh, were organized the same way, and yet, unfortunately, Maya inscriptions don't tell us this kind of a thing. They tell us other things. In fact, there's much more history, actually, in Maya inscriptions than there are in Khmer ones. Now, uh, everybody thinks it's Angkor Wat. Well, this is Angkor Wat. It's only part of Angkor, but really incredibly beautiful. And it's the largest religious structure in the entire world uh, and was built uh, in the first part of the 12th century uh, by a great and important uh, 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 king. As some people think, his funerary temple. His ashes were eventually going to be deposited in a deposit underneath or around uh, or by the lingam uh, 
uh, of, uh, 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 that would uh, be here. But it's not dedicated to Shiva, which most temples are, but rather to Vishnu because the main entrance actually faces uh, west here. You come in from the west uh, here. It's, it's again a temple mountain, a quincunx with four towers around a central one. And some of the most beautiful uh, sculpture in the world occurs there. Here is a uh, map of it uh, with an enlargement of some of the galleries, the great moat around it. A uh, huge, huge moat. I mean, really, everything's big. This is coming in from the west. And then galleries that are absolutely covered with bar-reliefs. These are the largest and longest bar continuous bar-reliefs in the entire world. All over Angkor Wat are these wonderful images of apsaras who are divine beings, lovely, lovely women, uh, uh, who were created during the churning of the Milky Sea and the uh, first moment of uh, creation. And they live in, uh, in the Cambodian uh, heaven, uh, but they represent, obviously, the thousands of probably palace attendants and dancers that were uh, at the, the beckoning of the king and his court. This is one of the corridors of, uh, uh, in Angkor Wat, the galleries, where, and these are all covered here, this surface, completely with bas-reliefs, extraordinarily and complex uh, and beautiful uh, bas-reliefs. Uh, one of them shows the king, uh, Suryavarman II, seated on his palanquin here, surrounded by his court officers with umbrellas and fans and fly whisks and so forth. And uh, uh, here is what he looked like. There are military processions with his war elephants and all of his officers and army. And then there's a whole lot of Hindu mythology told in other reliefs. But this man was a divine king. Uh, he was, some people think, a god-king. He represented the god on earth. In this case, Vishnu, usually the, the king uh, uh, was the avatar, the earthly representative of, of Shiva, the, the, the main god of the royal pantheon. Well, to get back to the map, you have been looking at Angkor Wat here, but the largest complex here is not Angkor Wat, but rather Angkor Thom. It's so big, I mean, you stand at one of these entrances and look across uh, up this road to the center of it, and it's all the way to the horizon, and then you realize that's, <laughs> there's another part that keeps on going all the way over there. A map like this can't even give you an idea of the scale of this. This is uh, uh, the part, just part of the moat around uh, 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 Angkor Thom. In Angkor Thom, the king who, the, the, uh, who was responsible for a lot of the architecture that you see was a man named Jayavarman VII. Unlike uh, his ancestors, he was a devout Buddhist, but a Buddhist uh, of the Mahayana sect, which um, was much more uh, complex and, and uh, much, more, uh, much less austere than uh, Hinayana Buddhism, which comes in much, much later, and therefore incorporated the Hindu gods into their mythologies and everything else. Um, all around uh, Angkor uh, Thom, and especially at the gates and in the center of it, the Bayon, is the face of what people think is Lokeshvara, the Buddha of the future. However, uh, it's the uh, a portrait, most people think, of Jayavarman VII himself.
and they're all over the place. Every one of these towers has these faces looking out, four faces around it here. Each one has four faces looking out. So everywhere you go, this is the very center, the central complex at Angkor Thom. You find this face looking out at you with his enigmatic Khmer smile. There are wonderful bas-reliefs uh, in the Bayon at the center of Angkor Thom showing all kinds of scenes of daily life and, like the Maya, scenes of warfare. In this case, the Khmer fighting a jungle battle with their traditional hereditary enemies, the Cham. Uh, the Cham have a long history also. They are Malayo-Polynesian speakers who um, occupied uh, large hunks of southern Vietnam and part of northeastern Cambodia and were, as I say, the hereditary enemies of Angkor and actually uh, conquered Angkor before Jayavarman VII took the throne and he beat them in a, a series of battles shown here very, very graphically. All sorts of scenes of daily life here. Uh, we know from, well, let's say right now, an awful lot of what we know about ancient Angkor is not from excavations that the archaeologists have done because they've been mainly concerned with reconstruction and uh, making the place into a tourist site and with art history not with big anthropologically interesting questions. Most, therefore, of what we know about their life comes from two sources. One, these bas-reliefs on the Bayon, and secondly, a Chinese traveler named Zhou Daguan, who was a uh, diplomatic envoy from the Yuan court, the court of the Mongol kings in China at that point, and who came back after a year or two in Angkor and wrote a wonderful account of late 13th century Angkor. It's delightful. It's wonderful to read. And, gives, uh, and, and most of what people talk about is actually based upon this, particularly upon Zhou Daguan, because the Khmer sources don't tell you these things. We know that the king had thousands of servants in the royal palace that he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of concubines, and it's a wonderful description of the royal life, of the splendid riches, uh, of this, this man who could command these elephant armies and tons of gold pouring in at all times, and the tremendous luxury in which he, uh, he and his court lived. Uh, this is a scene in the Bayon showing uh, 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 probably part of the palace, but uh, I'll come to the palace in, in a moment, the royal palace. Uh, but that's all we know. That is the royal palace in uh, 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 Angkor Thom. It's huge. It's a tremendous structure. I mean, really big with ceremonial pools there. Uh, this is the uh, um, royal temple in which the royal family worshipped. Uh, the elephant terrace is here where he went out and watched these great processions and according to Joe Daguan, even fireworks shows and all sorts of things over here. It's barely been touched archaeologically. Uh, the excavations uh, are going on now, but uh, just beginning. There isn't even uh, a, an archaeological sequence that's based upon dirt archaeology for Angkor, I discovered. I'm talking to all the various expeditions that are in there today. There's about six different groups at Angkor now from all over the world. There's two to three Japanese ones. There's, there's everything but an American one, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, they're just beginning the kind of study that went on 50 years ago in the Maya area, where you uh, build up sequences through a study of pottery and things like this. It's just in its infancy today. So there's not much we know about the royal palace except what Joe Daguan tells us.
That's the elephant terrace uh, that I told you about with uh, the king's war elephants shown here in bas-relief here, going along here. And we know from Joe Dagwan that he and his court and his wives and everybody came out and watched these incredible spectacles that took place uh, during the year at uh, Angkor. Well now, um, everything comes to a halt uh, here eventually, but before it does, under Jayavarman VII uh, and the later kings, um, Angkor uh, basically conquered the rest of Southeast, most of Southeast Asia. Large parts of Thailand, they held all of this area of uh, Vietnam down here, uh, all the way into uh, uh, Burma, and then down into the uh, Malay Peninsula uh, in what is Malaysia today. It was a huge empire at its height, uh, uh, reaching its height probably in the uh, 11th, uh, 12th, and 13th uh, centuries. But then things eventually start to fall apart. Uh, at their height, uh, there are numerous provincial capitals. This is one of the most amazing of them, uh, uh, a place called Pravihiar, which until the uh, Khmer Rouge uh, uh, decided to make peace with the government uh, about a, a year or so ago, you could not go to. I've been there. It's uh, an incredible site on the edge of the Dangrek Mountains overlooking the Cambodian lowlands here. And it's sort of scary to go there because you know that the people who are taking you around these ruins were Khmer Rouge only about two years ago. Now they're selling Coca-Cola to the tourists. But um, St. Transit Gloria. Uh, but it's a wonderful ceremonial site. And there's sites like this all over Cambodia and northeastern Thailand. And at this point, I've been to an awful lot of them. Um, this is a, a very important site uh, in Pimai in, in Thailand today that's been beautifully restored by the Thai government, which has done a lot of very good archaeology. Um, a sort of a, a miniature uh, uh, encore uh, here. And even in Laos, there's major uh, Angkor sites. This is the most important of them. Bat Pu, which is above uh, the western bank of the uh, Mekong River in Laos, one of the palace uh, structures here. It hasn't been reconstructed at all, but it's a very beautiful site and a very ancient one. The problem in studying Angkor is, and all the theories about Angkor, is that there's no, that until recently, there's been no really good map of Angkor. That's uh, the equivalent to the maps that uh, I've shown you of uh, classic Maya sites. They've never done the on-the-ground survey that should be done. Except recently, the Japanese uh, uh, International Cooperation Association, or JICA, has made a re some really good maps that are almost impossible to get. Uh, I'm still trying. I photographed these things surreptitiously the last time I was in Encore. <laughs> You're looking at the photograph of part of it. Uh, wonderful maps, uh, topographic maps using aerial survey, uh, photogrammetry uh, of Encore. And it's really important uh, to do this. This is Encore Tom. The royal palace is up here. This is where the Bayon was. This is Encore Vat. This is the western Barai, the eastern Barai up here, and so forth. Uh, this covers a, a, a big hunk of Angkor, just this map uh, here in uh, three or four colors. Uh, and very, very detailed. It's got elevations here. And what's come out of this are two things. First of all, uh, it turns out that it's impossible uh, 
that these barais, these great reservoirs, ever could have irrigated uh, the fields that past investigators like uh, Bernard-Philippe Grolier claimed it did. He claimed that this was a great irrigation civilization city. Uh, it's impossible that these things could have done this. It just doesn't work out from the elevations. And there's no sign that the dikes that go around this were ever breached to flood these fields. In fact, we know that uh, from very good studies that geographers have carried out here recently, well, not as thorough as they might be, but they've started it, that basically these fields are not irrigated, but rather they've got uh, some flood retention devices and uh, to hold the water back so that it doesn't all run out as the dry season uh, uh, goes on. There's a lot of water coming down from the Kulen Hills to the north into here uh, to, air, to fill these reservoirs. So what are the reservoirs there for? The reservoirs are there for ideological reasons because the, the Hindu religion that they follow demands reflecting pools, demands these sacred oceans around and near their holy sites. Uh, this thing was built for totally uneconomic reasons. has nothing to do with the famous economic substructure uh, that's supposed to be underneath everything, but has to do with the ideology of kingship uh, and the idea uh, that's behind uh, Hindu religious uh, uh, iconography. So you have to have these, the, these moats and these huge reflecting pools here. Uh, they have no practical use whatsoever. And in fact, this western Barai, before the uh, uh, Cambodian wars began, in recent ones, the U.S. government and the French government tried to, to reconstruct this thing and put in a, a system that was supposed to irrigate all the fields down in this area here, and it doesn't work. No Cambodian in his right mind, no farmer ever could grow rice where, uh, uh, from this thing. And uh, it doesn't work. So the, the idea that this was an irrigation civilization is now pretty much kaput. The other thing is, what kind of a city is this, or was this? Now, we know what the Maya cities were like from the surveys that have been done. Very, lots of excavation done in hamlets, outlying sites, little village groups. Every kind of place has been surveyed in the Maya era. Here, nothing's been done, absolutely zero. But on the basis of this map, and if you look at the aerial photographs, whole areas of this are uh, in... Uh, ancient rice fields. You can see the, the, the bonds or the uh, uh, dikes around these old rice fields that are all laid out on a grid pattern here. If this were a city, in our sense, why is it that you have huge areas in this that were growing rice? Uh, it's as though, you know, Central Park was turned into a Kansas farm. It doesn't honestly make any sense to me. Uh, is, was this really an urban city on the Chinese model or the Western European model or the Near Eastern model? I don't know, and I think that's all up in the air now. Was it even an urban civilization? Or are these holy cities with the bureaucrats and the royal family and all the traders and everybody around them, but not really a city in the sense that we know it. We don't know at this point. Well, now, <laughs> I said this before and I'll say it again, all this comes to an end. There is a mighty collapse of the classic Khmer civilization and Angkor itself that takes place uh, at the end of the 14th and beginning of the 15th century. As the Thai 
come into Thailand and start moving down, originating in China, and come down here, they begin attacking uh, Angkor and the outlying uh, uh, parts of Ang the Angkor state and uh, start defeating the Angkor kings. Um, at the same time, the uh, other peoples are moving down in here, particularly the, the Vietnamese and so forth, taking over every other areas from these people. In 1431, Angkor is abandoned, largely, not entirely, but largely, amongst uh, on, and the capital is moved down uh, to this region here, eventually to Phnom Penh, where it is uh, today. Uh, the court moves down, but it's in total disarray. It's nothing the way it had been before. Uh, the kings are still divine, but they have extremely little power compared to their ancestors, Jayavarman VII and Suryavarman II and Yashovarman I. It's a, it's a pale reflection of what went on. They've gone into a post-classic phase of uh, all sorts of disruptions uh, taking place. At the same time, the Thai uh, victors introduce Theravada Buddhism, uh, which is totally different than what the Khmer rulers had been used to, and totally different from the ideology of the Khmer god king. Uh, Theravada Buddhism uh, is the kind of Buddhism practiced in Sri Lanka. In, uh, it's practiced in uh, Thailand and a number of other countries, uh, including uh, uh, Laos. Um, and it is and in Cambodia today. And it is built around the meeting hall where monks who do not belong to uh, high-ranking nobility or anything, it's a highly democratic religion, all meet to decide the affairs of the community. And this is the basis of Theravada Buddhism. It's a, it's a communal uh, religion and a religion of, of uh, uh, it's a gentle religion. Uh, no more uh, uh, warrior gods like Shiva going out and raising uh, all kinds of cane with the, with the enemy. Um, it's a totally different ideology. It does not celebrate the, the, the royal, uh, uh, the building of, of royal monuments for the royal ashes, but rather puts up uh, stupas uh, that look like the old royal monuments, but for ashes and relics of important Buddhist saints. A totally different religion comes in at this point. And uh, Angkor does not uh, uh, entirely disappear because the Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist monks continue to use Angkor Wat, Wat means a Buddhist monastery, Angkor Wat as a, uh, as a great uh, a temple, a communal temple for these people. And they're still there today. When you walk through Angkor Wat, you will come across Theravada Buddhist uh, monks conducting ceremonies. And uh, they're, they're, they're living there today all around Angkor Wat and have always been there. The French claim that in the, uh, around the end of the 1850s uh, that a man named Henri Mouot discovered Angkor. <laughs> he didn't discover Angkor. It's never been forgotten. There have always been people living there. Uh, all the Cambodians knew where it was. Uh, and, a very, and the Cambodian monks uh, kept it clean and kept it cleared. You could always go and visit uh, Angkor. And many, many visitors did, even before Monsieur Henri Mouot uh, came there. So it's, 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 it's a total takeover. There is Phnom Penh as it is today. That's the royal uh, palace uh, there. And the king still, there still is a king and a, and a royal house there, but greatly, greatly diminished. He's still divine in many respects, but nothing like his ancestors. 
So what has happened here in this collapse is a total socio-political collapse of an ancient system that had an ideological basis to it. We see no reason to believe that it was anything economic that resulted in this, but rather the whole raison d'etre of the whole thing, the god king, uh, no longer could, could rule. Um, I have a quote on this from, uh, I had a quote, from a wonderful student of this uh, subject uh, who was an American diplomat, uh, uh, Lawrence P. Briggs, who wrote a great book called The Khmer Empire, which really got me going on this. And he says uh, here, it's a long, long sentence, no amount of blows from without could account for the unfinished condition of temples and sculptures begun decades and even centuries before the fall of Angkor, or for the systematic mutilation of the image, images of the hated gods seen everywhere at Angkor, and you do see that. In short, to use a crude expression, the wonderful period of ancient Khmer civilization ended, not so much because the Khmers got licked, but because they got religion. And this is uh, absolutely true. Now, let's just uh, uh, finish it off and look at the Maya again. Oh, there, by the way, is what happened to Angkor, most of Angkor. It went back to the forest. Uh, there and these great jungle trees took it over. It's very, this is Taprom, a wonderfully romantic part of Angkor that the French archaeologists have left uh, in its original condition. The same thing happened to the Maya area. This is Tikal, an artist's reconstruction of it around 1000 AD, a uh, hundred and something years after the fall of the classic. And all these structures are now going back to the forest with various uh, small little groups camping out uh, in the ruins uh, here, from the, uh, mut but mutilating the monuments the same way the Cambodians had done uh, uh, at Angkor. And no longer, uh, all of these cities now abandoned, uh, and they moved somewhere else. They moved, according to very bad records we have, to the north into northern Yucatan and possibly into uh, Guatemala at this uh, point. And at the same time, just as in the Cambodian case, a new religion comes in uh, into the Maya region. This is taken at Chichen Itza. Uh, a religion based upon a god who had not existed before among the classic Maya, and that's the feathered serpent, or Quetzalcoatl, known to the Maya as Kukulkan. It became a single cult in which the old Maya gods had really pretty much been put to one side. They built a four-sided pyramid in honor of Kukulkan here. And uh, uh, this is very, very late. I mean, this is now, uh, we're talking about after 900 AD to about 1200 AD when all of this, here's a feathered serpent on one of their temples. Grim kind of architecture, highly militaristic, uh, uh, um, and definite evidence of outside people coming in from Mexico at that point, just as the Thai had come into uh, the uh, old Khmer uh, uh, area. So an ideology uh, has uh, now, the old religion is totally overturned. There are no more god kings left uh, in the Maya area, just as in Cambodia. There are no more scribes. They no longer make that beautiful pottery with those wonderful scenes. The scribes have all gone, as far as we know, very few of them left. Total destruction of an old way of life. So what did it? Well, uh, 
a number of archaeologists in on both sides of the water think that these two ancient civilizations were really the, the destruction of them was because after six or eight hundred years and that's how long most ancient civilizations last that the people had had enough uh, but uh, that had, after all, when you consider that all of Cambodia, most of the people there were, were basically slaves of these great temple cities, you can understand uh, that they, they, they get pattern exhaustion. They get tired of doing the same thing over and over again. In the Maya area, because of the good studies we have, we know that this went along with other factors. It went along with environmental destruction, and it went along with a collapse of the uh, uh, agricultural system. The, the, there's no evidence for this in Cambodia, but that's because they haven't looked. Uh, as I say, Cambodia, Cambodian archaeology is 50 years behind that of the Maya, and someday uh, we'll know this kind of thing. Um, so that's the story that's told by these two civilizations. They run in parallel, except slightly askew as far as time goes. But there's so many things that can be learned and thought about, and new ideas come up by comparing these two civilizations. Whether they were connected or not, we don't know ever. I don't think they actually were. But they have lessons to give to each other that I think we'll all uh, want to learn from someday. Thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, um, when I was in high school, we read about the Maya and war and bloodletting and yeah. torture. And I was wondering, where are the depictions of dancers or musicians or people making love or doing the things that people do in real life? In real life. Um, the, now, that's a good question. That whole business about all the bloodletting and whatnot, there was a period in Maya studies uh, about uh, 15 years ago or so where everything was blood. <laughs> and uh, uh, the picture came up of a bunch of people who were doing nothing but sort of mutilating themselves and each other to draw blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a little bit exaggerated, uh, we now know where. Uh, but on the other hand, this did occur to a certain extent, just as human sacrifice did. But the ordinary day-to-day -day life of the Maya um, is depicted, you get uh, 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 views of this on the class classic Maya pictorial pottery. We have palace scenes. You don't show on that, you don't show the slobs. The proletariat doesn't show on that. Just like they, you know, in most civilizations, uh, that kind of life is really downplayed. Uh, you have, the elite were concerned with their own life, with themselves, and with courtly things. So a lot of that has to do with the courts. And we get a lot of views of what went on in the courts. Marriage negotiations, feasting is big now uh, on classic Maya pottery. You see this on Justin Kerr's wonderful rollout of classic Maya pottery, this kind of thing going on. Gift giving, tribute, uh, this kind of thing. That's what you get uh, depicted there. The Bonampak murals, 
which are the, 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 the most, or were, now they're largely destroyed, uh, the, the, the best picture into what the, it looked like in a classic Maya site. They show you warfare in one room going on, uh, in, off in the jungle, really very accurate description of this thing. Uh, arraignment of prisoners, then it shows uh, preparations uh, for a great celebration going on, and all the palace servants and so forth are there doing whatever they have to do, including people who are putting all the equipment on the participants. And then finally, the last room shows a, a, a great dance going on with probably the feathers from several thousand Quetzal birds involved in that in their costume. But the point is that the, the dance is a sacrificial dance. There's somebody getting sacrificed and beheaded eventually uh, there. That's what you get for the classic Maya. There are no scenes uh, that I know of that give you the kind of life that you find at Angkor in the Bayon reliefs where you have people showing them cockfighting and gambling and stuff going on in markets and whatnot. We, we, we don't have that. They were, they, were, they were operating on a different level. But we know an awful lot about courtly life uh, from this. Yes, please. Uh, yes, Professor, I have a couple. Uh, about what is the ratio of size between uh, Tikal and Encore? about how, how much larger. How much larger is Encore than Tikal? Yes, <laughs> it's at least 15 times larger, maybe 20. If you look at that map where I put Tikal in Photoshop, I put it on at the same scale, and it's only this big, and Encore is like that. I'd say at least. The other question is, you mentioned the, uh, the Chinese scholar yeah, Joe Daguan. Uh, yes, could you, could you spell that out? Uh, Joe Daguan? Well, I'm going to use the old uh, Wade Giles uh, system of transliteration. C-H-O-U, then T-A-K-U-A-N. Joe Daguan. I don't know what the pinyin is for it, but that's uh, Joe Daguan. And he was a diplomat, Chinese diplomat. And it was published first in French, uh, in a French translation by Paul Pelliot, but you can find it uh, in bookstores in Bangkok in English, a uh, little paperback. It's wonderful. It's really very entertaining. He had a wonderful sense of humor. And he loved those, Cam those Khmer ladies. He really did. Uh, it's the uh, uh, customs, customs of Cambodia. It's a geographic, the Chinese uh, when they went on these expeditions, you know, for trading expeditions and diplomatic ones, they would get back and they'd write up an account of what they'd seen. And these are very early ethnographies. They're often very entertaining. There's another Chinese named Ma Duan Lin, who also uh, was much, much earlier, who describes a sort of pre-Angkor life. Uh, you know, somebody could search through Chinese archives and they'd find more of these things, but there are a lot of descriptions. The Chinese were always interested in the barbarians, the outer barbarians. I mean, they were really fascinated. They were early anthropologists, and uh, they really liked that kind of stuff, and they wrote, wrote it up. And Zhou Daguan, we know, is very, very accurate. Everything he says is true. Please. Yeah. Uh, is it possible that there was any pulling back to 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely is. That's right. Well, you want you want me to let my hair down about this? <laughs> uh, the I am convinced from a lot of time spent in Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, I've spent as much time there as I practically have in, in Mexico and Central America that, uh, and extended stays in Bali. I'm convinced that there's a connection. And I think that this connection is on an intellectual level and that it took place uh, sometime in the early centuries of our era. Uh, and uh, it would have involved such things as the transmission of bark paper books. Uh, the technology behind bark paper books that are folding screen books. Uh, it would have involved calendrical things, uh, such as permutation calendars. The, the Balinese permutation calendar is practically identical to what I've described of the uh, Maya calendar. It's incredible how close it is. Gets, when I talk to a Balinese calendar priest, I can predict the next thing he's going to say from what I know about the Maya. It's really strange. Uh, there are color directions. The idea that the, 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 the universe is associated with the, the four directions, but which have colors and plants and specific birds and animals associated with them. That's spread all over East Asia, Southeast Asia, and Mesoamerica, a little bit up into the Southwest of the United States. Just thing after thing after thing, always on an intellectual level. Of course, there's no horses, there's no water buffaloes, there's no rice. Uh, there's no wheat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think that uh, the navigational skills of the peoples of East and Southeast Asia were tremendous. The Borne people of Borneo uh, in the first centuries of our era got all the way to Madagascar. The people in Madagascar speak a language that is from Borneo. That's a long, 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 long way. These were master, master, navigators, these people, and uh, we know that. The Chinese were master navigators. The Southeast Asians were, if you go to Borobudur and look at the great boats that are in Borobudur and, Ch and uh, uh, Java, uh, there are these huge outrigger uh, um, boats that are as big as European boats of the day. I think they could make it easily across and back. So I think there was contact. I really do. But uh, nobody's ever found the smoking gun. That is, you, if you could find a, uh, let's say, a wonderful Buddha statue or uh, a Shiva <laughs> in, a, in an early tomb in the Maya area, that would be a... <laughs> you want to watch out, though. There's a lot of jokers around who like to salt excavations and drop something in surreptitiously. I used to carry pieces of Roman glass around with me to excavations, <laughs> hoping to be able to drop them in. <laughs> but I really do think someday, uh, I think there really is, I mean, the, the, the eclipse calendar of the Han Chinese, which I talked about last time, or two times ago, of Han Dynasty China, is identical to the eclipse calendar that's in the Maya Dresden Codex that the Maya had. Uh, there are many ways, there are a number of ways to skin that cat, and it happened to be that the Maya and the Chinese did it alike, as Sir Joseph Needham, who once was up here lecturing in the same series, uh, uh, pointed out. Uh, yes, please. A Maitreya in Palenque. No, I've never seen a Maitreya in Palenque. I'll tell you what has shown up, though. 
a Roman, a Roman uh, uh, figurine, uh, a head. <laughs> I didn't drop it. <laughs> uh, uh, showed up at a site called Calishla Waka, which is near Toluca in the highlands of Mexico, uh, uh, way uh, southwest of Mexico City. And uh, uh, it's in a pre-Columbian context. Uh, I know the guy who found it uh, was a very fine archaeologist. It's in a, underneath a sealed floor uh, in this site, which is a very late site. I mean, it's in an Aztec period, but it's, it's pre-Spanish. And uh, they've recently analyzed that, and it's Roman. Um, they carried out chemical analyses on it. There's no doubt about it. It's terra sigillata. It's a, it's a Roman figurine. How did that get there? <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, like, uh, is there any relation, you think, with the Bay of Jars, I guess, Brazil? Uh, are you talking about the so-called Phoenician stuff there? I'm not going to get into to that one. That gets a little, that's a guy called Barry Fell, and I, I don't believe anything he says, to tell you the truth. But a Roman figurine isn't going to worry me because there are Roman figurines that show up at Ocao, that site in the, uh, that site in the Delta region of Vietnam, which was very early, the first centuries of uh, our era. So, uh, who knows? I keep my mind open about this, I really do. But when it comes to the big question, uh, is all of Maya civilization or all of New World civilization transplanted from the Old World, the answer is N-O. Most of it is basically uh, uh, native. Yes, please. The uh, question of Yeah. Uh, I'd like to discuss that for a moment. The warfare that's depicted uh, on the bottom top mural right. could very easily be a raiding party of 20 individuals. Well, that's exactly what Eric Thompson said in the uh, initial comment that he made on that mural. Yeah. In the same kind of raid, like 20 or 30 individuals, I question the use of uh, warfare to represent that deeper religion. Well, <laughs> that's how you define, can I answer your question? That's how you define warfare. I mean, it depends on how you define warfare. I think raids are part of warfare. Uh, I mean, guerrilla warfare is largely raids carried out, and very highly successfully, too, very often. Uh, that's the way the Maya fought. They fought the Spaniards with raids, actually. The Maya were great resistors of the Spaniards. They fought at night, they fought in the jungle, they used uh, all kinds of modern guerrilla tactics on them, and it took hundreds of years for the Spaniards to really conquer the Maya. And in fact, I knew, in the east coast of Yucatan, I knew independent Maya in the late 1940s, uh, uh, who always, had never been conquered. Um, What's, why can't that be warfare? I mean, it's guerrilla warfare is warfare as far as I'm concerned. Whether, if you, you know, versus a pitched battle is what you're thinking about, that's another story. But the Aztecs, for instance, made a big, big mistake uh, in fighting a pitched battle against the, the, the uh, in Otumba, against the Spaniards, which they lost. That's when the Spaniards moved on, on the Great Lake. and. Uh, 
finally were able to take uh, a tenor statement. But they never should have fought a pitched battle. If they'd done the way the Maya uh, did it, um, everybody in Mexico would still be speaking Nahuatl, the Aztec language. Would you please join me in thanking Professor Goldberg? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.